We'll be reading out of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. When good things increase, the one who consumes them multiply. What, then, is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility and he goes in darkness and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage, then, does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Whatever exists was given its name long ago and is known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen <clears throat> after him under the sun? <clears throat> Amen. Hey, thanks, Lucy. Man, I, all right. I know, so I know, I know we read through Ecclesiastes and we're like, man, when is the happy times coming? I promise there are happy times ahead, but, but uh, man, how powerful a book is, is Ecclesiastes. I mean, just can we accept the fact that this strange and unusual book in the Old Testament is even here, first of all. Like, it's one that we often look at it, we go, I can't even pronounce the name of the title of the book. What in the world am I going to do when I actually get into the thing? And then we read passages like this that are, are, are talking about this, this endless futility and struggle and, and, and hardship. And we go, man, how in the world are we going to, what does God have to say in the midst of this? What about joy and happiness? What about 
uh, the, 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 the rest and all of those things. It doesn't seem like, at least, when, 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 uh, when this man called the teacher is, 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 ex- is examining the life set before him, it doesn't necessarily seem, at first glance, that, that there is much to be happy about or thankful for. But hang with me, okay? Today, we're gonna, there's, there's going to be a, a spark, a glimpse of something that, that shows up in the teacher's voice as he goes. So uh, we've been working through this series called uh, Living by Dying. It's the paradox of Ecclesiastes. And, and uh, I don't know if you, you know, but the word Ecclesiastes is Greek for a person who assembles, who draws in. In Hebrew, the word would be kohelet. In your Bibles, when you see the word the teacher or the preacher, in Greek, that's the word Ecclesiastes. That's where the name comes from. So in a way, this book is just named after the teacher or the preacher, the one who, who assembles, who, who draws everyone in. In fact, uh, all of your Old Testament books are actually based on the Greek Septuagint, fun fact. So Genesis is the Greek word for beginning. Okay, Exodus, the Greek word for exit or escape. Um, so now, now you know that, so there you go. Fun fact to tell all your friends. Uh, but anyways, so what's going on in this book is you have this, this man, this, this um, old man who has experienced much. He's wealthy. He's a king. He, he gathers all of his people into his presence. He says, I need you all to come here. There's one last thing I have to say before I am done. I have lived this great life, and I need you all to come in. And and here, I want to tell you what I have discovered about life and purpose and meaning and what it's all about. What's the purpose and goal of work and food and, and money, of, of having laughter or, or wisdom and revelry and power? He says, the answer to all of it is I don't know. It's a vapor. He says, it's hevel, hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. 37 times the teacher comes back to this word, hevel. Now, some of your Bibles will say meaningless. Now, that's not really true because there is absolutely meaning to all of these good things that are explained in the book of Ecclesiastes. There are many good things that are put forward. However, in all of this man's life, did he understand the meaning? Did he himself The fullness, the extent of human existence did mankind on his own ever figure out what all of these pieces are supposed to be? No. It was futile for him to understand. Some of your Bibles are going to use the word um, uh, vanity. And that can be really confusing for us in our terms because vanity for us means like to look in a mirror and to look at how beautiful you are. That's vanity, right? The, um, the makeup mirrors that you have in your house, those are called vanities, right? So we are used to kind of hearing that word vanity in a way that's sort of self-focused, self-serving. But, uh, and and that's, that's an okay word because, again, vain, to be vain is to be shallow and, and, tra- and like empty and not quite full and, and true, right? It's very surface level. That's an okay word. Some of our Bibles are going to say feudal. Um, but hevel literally means a vapor. It is smoke that rises up before us. And here's the thing about a vapor. It's real, right? The vapor is real. It's not, it's not fake. It's, it's very real. You can see this smoke that's coming up in front of you, right? You can even touch it. You can touch it, right? But you can also see through it at the same time. You can see it, but you can also see through it. You can touch it, but you can't hold it. It's there, but it's not there. 
probably one of the best words I've, I've seen to translate hevel. If you don't want to just call it a vapor, which is probably your best word, one of the best translations I've seen for it is the word absurd. It's absurdity. Uh, go back to the title slide real quick. All right, so, so I don't know if you guys have ever seen these shapes like this. They're so frustrating, the absurdity of it, right? Or, or maybe uh, if you've ever like, uh, seen any of the art by M.C. Escher. I, I sat uh, this morning, I was like, I have like 10 minutes. So I, I, pulled, up, um, I pulled up Google and, and searched some of M.C. Escher's artwork. And it's incredibly frustrating to watch because you're watching, these, um, you're watching this, this waterfall that's flowing uh, down and down and down, and all of a sudden it's at the top. And you're like, how did this happen? Where is the water eventually going to come down? And the idea is here where you're, you're taking this road. You're like, surely this road is going to take me somewhere, and, and then it, it, it doesn't. Or you go here, and I'm like, I, I know where I'm. Wait a second. And it's like it never ends. It's this unending road that's twisting and turning, and you keep finding yourself back at square one. And you go, man, at the end of the day, did this thing, this this good thing that I have tried to pursue in the world, did it get me anywhere? That job, that house, that, that, that relationship, did, did it get me where I wanted to go? And oftentimes we find ourselves back at square one. And, and the, the, the challenge with a book like Ecclesiastes is it's not like Proverbs is good math. Proverbs is good math. Follow the law. Love the Lord, practice wisdom, things were going to go well for you at the end. Like that's always the, the, it's always one plus one equals two, right? But Ecclesiastes is like one plus one equals rabbit. I don't, like, it's, it's always, it's like do well, do good things. You probably get persecuted for it and end up with nothing. And the person who does all the foolish and bad stuff, they're going to get all the money at the end. You're like, what? This doesn't make sense to me. But the reality is, is that this book is trying to point out something to us. That life is not always a simple formula. Christianity is not a formula. Religion is not, like, like the answer to life is not more formulas. It's messy. It's, it's challenging. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It's absurdity sometimes. And so Ecclesiastes, though, is this book that tests the limits to absurdity. It's, there is, it's about us and our pursuit to understand, to know, to be whatever it is we think we're supposed to be in this world and us bumping up against the limits of our own humanity. There is like this constant pressure within us, this, maybe you could call it a discontent, to, to do more, to have more, to be more than we are or we could ever be. And, the, and that discontent cries out within us saying, it's, it's not enough. What you're doing, who you are, what you have, it's not enough. So we continue to beat against the walls and the, the ceilings of our lives. We're running to the edges. We're, we're clambering over fences. And we have this idea in our heads that surely there must be more than what I know, than what I have, than what all of this is. We know inherently, innately, that there is something beyond, something eternal, something permanent. But what we look, what we see when we look around and when we act and we work and we fight and we try is that, is that it is elusive, transparent, almost unknowable. It is a vapor. But certainly there is someone or something that can answer this question once and for all. And so what we're doing is we're following this teacher on his journey, which is also our journey, toward the horizon of humanity. 
to see this, if we can see the vision for the good life that exists beyond ourselves. Today we are, we're at the second step of the journey. There's going to be three steps along the way. Uh, the first step, that was last week, we talked about pleasure, right? We talked about how we, uh, we have this, this, this desire to find purpose and value through sensory and <clears throat> and sens- sensual experience, the things that we feel. And so the teacher talks about alcohol and sex and, and, and music and art and, um, and, uh, and, and nature and, and affirmation and, and wisdom and all of these things that you can, you can experience, laughter, all of these things that we can feel. And he says, did that, did that work? Did that fit? Did I find something permanent? And he said, no, it was a vapor. So now he's going to turn to, to wealth, to possessions, and, and, our, our, and this hope that we have to find purpose and value through the accumulation of, of individual resources, the things that we can have and hold. Now before we get into this passage, and, and fair warning, we're going to be kind of jumping around the passage today, so if you have a Bible, it'll be really helpful for you as you kind of jumping around and explore. Uh, I'm not putting it on the screen because it was almost too complicated to, to put up there. We do have a, uh, we, we have like four Bibles back there on the table, so if you need one, let us know. We'll, we'll try to get one in your hands so you can follow along, or just lean over to the shoulder of the, the person next to you and let them, let them look a little closer, Okay. So I wanted to take just a moment to define what possessions are. What does it mean to possess something? And so my definition for this is that a possession is the physical, tangible, real object. Whatever or whoever it may be that you lay claim to that by all accounts is yours. This will include your bank account, your cell phone, your house, your car, and I would even argue your family and your friends. Now, now everybody, you stop me at this point and go, hold on, hold on. People are not objects. No person owns another person. That's slavery, right? I 100% agree with you. I'm not endorsing slavery. I'm not encouraging the ownership of another person. But I I do not own my wife or my kids the same way that I own my house or my car. But I will say this. Bethany is my wife. She's not your wife. She's my wife. So I have claim to her, all right? She's not anybody's wife but mine, and I am her husband. I'm not your husband. She, I am her husband. She has claim to me. My kids are my kids. You can't come in and say they're your kids. They're my kids, right? So, so I possess them in a way, not as an authoritarian slave owner, but I possess my family and my friends as a committed husband and father and friend. My relationship with my family and the health of it is a sign of my ownership, the claim that I lay to these people that I love. Now, I say this because because possession and ownership, they're not just a concept or ideal of like a Western civilization of the United States, uh, but it it is an integral part of what it means to be human. To to have possession is part of being human. Genesis chapter 1. God creates man and woman and he sets them in this, on this earth that he has just created. This beautiful garden and these trees and all of these animals and the, the rivers that are flowing out from it. And he says, all of this, I give you dominion over all. You know what dominion means? It means to rule own. He's saying, I give you ownership. 
You own all of this. This is yours to do what you want with it. You call it yours. It's mine. I made it. I created it. I'm sole final owner. But man, you have a, take ownership. Take it on. Make it your own. I have created this crazy, wild wilderness of a world. I want you to go in and start building order to it and creating and, and, and building and, and enjoying it for yourself and, and be fruitful and multiply. Spread the human project throughout the earth. It's yours to do. I give you ownership. To have that possession is a human thing. Now, the part of that, that that is important to see is that when we, when we have that possession, though, did the humans come and then take it from God by force? Did they will their way to have it? No. It was a gift. In God's world, possession is a gift. Not something you take for yourself. It's something that's given to you. It's a gift. And that's, that's important. Um, we, we love gifts. We're heading into the Christmas season. My kids are, are very aware of, 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 of Christmas that is coming. They have been working on their Christmas lists since last month. So three months in, they're like, I got to get these Christmas lists done now. Um, and, um, and so they've been working on the Christmas list. I, I have one here, actually. I won't tell you which... Which, uh, which child this is from. Um, but, but some of these things are pretty awesome. Um, uh, I have a, she's a sweet daughter. So uh, to have it snow, um, a, a book to write in, more costumes, to have my own room um, for my mom to feel better most of all. That's super sweet. Um, more than anything, a retriever Labrador puppy. The shift in what we decided was important over time. Um, yeah, uh, a flower and fruit uh, stand for a garden, a ukulele, uh, bow and arrows, massage gift card. Man, I see those lists and I'm like, <sighs> I'm going to give you two things from that list, maybe. Pressure as a dad, right? But I want, I want to give my child all the things on that list. Why? Because she's expressing the desire that she has to say, man, if I had these things, man, my life would be complete. Like, right? It was sort of that thing, like, if, I, if my list was filled, like, I'm just picturing the joy of my daughter of, like, and I know these things don't satisfy her because I'm like, first of all, the breadth of it is just impossible, right? But because she wants a Labrador, but I think on another list, she has two lists. Um, I think one says a Labrador, and I think the other one says a totally different type of dog. And I'm like, this, this isn't going to happen, honey. But, um, but, but, man, what's the intrinsic idea behind it? The idea is that with, with this idea, if, if I have received these gifts... Man, it's, it's, going to, it's going to be important to me. We, we assign value to these gifts and how not only the gifts have value, but how that value relates to us, right? I've been thinking about this a lot and why gifts are such a big deal. And so when I think about like all of it, it's, my theory is that a gift is an act of grace, a gift is not something that you have earned, but is something given to you as a sign of relationship. Do you expect gifts from people who aren't your friends or your family? No, because you don't have a relationship with them. Why would they give you a gift if they haven't connected in a relationship? A gift is representative of connection to another human being. That someone else has thought of you and values you enough to warrant blessing you with something that you value. And so, to give a gift is like saying, I value you this much. My value, I am imparting value to you based on the value of what you consider important to me. 
right? Gifts are incredibly powerful in that regard. So, so keep all of these ideas of, of, of this concept of gifts, this, gift, uh, this idea of possession and ownership, of having, of value. Just kind of hold that in your mind for now because we're going we're gonna to be encountering um, this idea. So, so keep your, keep your uh, mind on, on the teacher as we start talking about this. As we're looking through it, think about this lens. A possession is anything or any person of which we claim intrinsic ownership, that we are charged with caring for, protecting, maintaining, and even loving. And two, a possession is directly tied to our perception of value and worth, both in what we value and in how we ourselves are valued. So, With that in mind, what does it mean to live as human beings in light of our personal wealth? Because the question that the teacher is going to ask here is, is life validated by the size and health and quality of what we have? Is it really true, the teacher says, that he who dies with the most toys wins? Let's see what he has to say, yeah? Let's get in. All right. So like I said, we're going to jump around a bit. So keep your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6. Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs and before Song of Songs. So, man, someday we'll do Song of Songs. It'll be so awkward. I'm going to love it. It's going to be awesome. All right. Um, Chapter 5. Verse 12, the sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed, As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. The abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Now we're going to read in a moment later on that, that, that the teacher would almost rather that we were like stillborn children than to live and strive and gain nothing when all is said and done. Now to me, that's a, that's a frightening and disturbing image. To think it... To basically, to basically say it were better, what he's basically saying here, he's saying it were better if you had not been born than to live and to experience all of the frustration and hurt and anger that this life has to offer. And those are hard words coming from the teacher, isn't it? No, I'm not saying to you, I live on this side of grace, on this side of Jesus. Do not hear me say it would be better that you were not born. I am so thankful that you've been born. The whole point of what we're talking about is living by dying. What the teacher is struggling with is he is dying by living, and that is his problem. He is dying by trying to live, and what we are recognizing now is that by dying can we live. It's only in that way. But in the, the process, in the, the, the experiment of human experiment that the teacher is going through, he's saying, it's not working on my end. So man, the abundance of the rich permits no sleep. It, if you were to get up and live and you toil all your days and you come back exactly where you started, man, what's the point? That's the struggle he's going with. There is this endlessness that doesn't seem to pay out in the end. And so that's, that's the struggle here. But man, how true is it that we, we, we do this? 
We organize and schedule our lives around this frantic procurement of things. The teacher says the worker will eat a little or a lot, do his job, and be done. But the wealthy man will gauge his happiness on how much he ate compared to his last meal. And the one before that and the one before that. And he can only stop gaining if the meal that he has next is better and more satisfying than the one he had before. If it's less, then he has to keep working and keep working and keep working. Um, I, I was reading one, one author who basically said, it's like shooting yourself in the foot so you can hop faster. Right? I'm like, it's, it's sort of that idea. There's this constant, reckless, frantic pursuit of something, gaining and having and holding and, and, and grabbing. And yet, he's, and, and yet the, what, what we notice is that, and you can see this in, in life, the more you have, the more you want and the more you need. It never seems like there is enough the bar continues to rise. The risks become greater. And everything can get lost in the moment. There is not sleep. There is only worry and fear and what ifs. So think about this for a second. What do you look forward to in life? What do you need to have to feel secure, protected, established, even normal. Like, do you realize that in most places, especially around where we live, like, it would be, it's, it's strange not to have a car. It's weird that you, if you don't own a car. What about a computer? Like, everybody has a computer. It's strange to not have a computer today and age, right? Like, it's, it's almost like shocking or surprising when somebody's like, I don't have a computer. And you're like, how do you not have a computer? Like, I have a computer on my wrist. Like, everybody has computers, right? You're, you're just, it's like part of what we do. It's almost become expected that we all possess some sort of standard of goods just to, just to exist here. Now, when I reached adulthood and it, it doesn't seem that long ago to me, but I, it, it's getting further and further and further the, way, the longer I go. Um, I guess that cycle of time thing in Exodus 3 is what's happening to me. Um, I had this, so in that point, I had these like basic expectations of what I needed to have in order to arrive. Here's what I need. I would need a college degree. I need a vehicle. I need a house. I need a wife. And I need children. Now, it seems really weird to list them like that in, in whatever order. And, and I, don't, I never consciously made a list like this. Like, you couldn't go to 17-year-old uh, me's home and see a list like this of saying, what I need to be an adult, and write, written down in this list. That's not like a, a conscious list that I made, but it's inherent, sort of, to what we think we need. And, and so, um, so now, uh, looking back, uh, here's where I'm at. Well, let me give you the, the update of where I'm at. Uh, I have two degrees. I have two college degrees um, that I'm still paying for. I have a car that I'm still paying for. Uh, I have a, uh, a home that I pay for. I have a family, a large family of six, six people that I feed and clothe and shelter and train and pay for. Uh, and, and those are just the basics, right? I don't even include, like, food and gas. And like, like, I am always paying for all of the things that I have. It is a restless accumulation of possessions. And to keep them, to preserve them, to maintain them, takes more and more and more. It's not like I got it and then I'm done. I'm, I'm at peace. It's like I have it. Now I have to keep it. Like, how do you keep it? you got to pay more to keep it, right? It's, it's this constant cycle of more and more and more. So I get what the teacher is saying when he tells us that when goods increase, they increase who eat them. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And I'm not even rich according to how the government tells you you're supposed to be rich. Like their standards, I do not measure up. 
that's right. But, but we get this idea that, that somehow, once we have all of these things that label us as mature humans, we can be done. We've made it. We've arrived. And that's not how it works. Everyone who's even come close to adulthood in this room knows that's exactly how this works. That it's not, that's not working that way. Once we get these things, once we hold them in our hands, they can just as easily slip away from us. So, and so we have to continue to work endlessly to keep them. If you stop paying on that car that you've always wanted, then the loan company takes it away. If you stop providing for your children, the government takes them away, right? Uh, I have seen too many marriages end because a great investment was made in acquiring the husband or wife, but weariness sets in after the wedding, and the work of love and commitment ends, and everything falls apart. Why do we put ourselves in such a strenuous position? Susan White was a journalist in the 80s and 90s, and she wrote on what she perceived to be the future of mankind in the new millennium. And she writes this. She says, if there is an overarching story that claims to explain reality, it is surely the free market economy. In the beginning of this story is the self-made, self-sufficient human being. At the end of this narrative is the big house, the big car, and the expensive clothes. And in the middle is the struggle for success, the greed, the getting and spending in a world in which there is no such thing as a free lunch. Most of us have made this so thoroughly our story that we are hardly aware of its influence. Now, as White said, we desire self-sufficiency. We want to be wanted but we don't want to be in want. Our worth as human beings has a direct correlation to our fiscal worth. Now, so let me ask you this. How many of you believe, and, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Uh, you can raise your hand, don't raise your hand. I don't care. Um, how many of you would, 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 would believe that it is essential to have a car or a house? Like, it's an essential part of, yeah. I mean, like, I, I'm going to say, yeah, it's, it's an essential for me. I have a family. I, I need a house to put them in, right? It's fair. I tell my kids, part of the benefit of you living in here, it, living under my roof, is that you have a roof. Like, otherwise you wouldn't, right? Um, so, so does a, like, within that scope, we would say, okay, so does a mortgage of 200000 sound totally out of the question? Like, no, we would say, okay, it's, it's, in, it's part of our investment to, to work towards having, having what we need, an essential thing. So if you could qualify, does that sound like, that almost sounds normal to us, right? That doesn't sound absurd. That doesn't sound strange. That doesn't sound weird. Now let me ask you this. How many of you would be willing to go into debt to give money to charity, to alleviate poverty and sickness? Would you, would you take out a loan to see that happen? Would you take out $200,000 to alleviate injustice in the world? Like if you could qualify for it. Uh, does, that sounds weird. That sounds absurd. That sounds crazy. No, that sounds crazy. Nobody would do that. Like it's almost, it's almost weird, but, but yet the, the, the point I'm making in there is that, that we have no qualms going into debt for what we consider necessary expenses for life and living, and yet it almost sounds nonsensical to go into debt to give money away to those who have none. We make ourselves weary going after meaningful life, and yet we will find no rest in our possessions. So first, he says, possessions leave us restless. And then he's going to say, possessions leave us dissatisfied. How are you guys doing? Hanging in there? Okay. Good. 
So uh, the teacher is going to commit. He's like, God gives us, us wealth and gifts and possessions and honor, and I, and I lack nothing, but I can't enjoy them somehow. He says um, in, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, If you see the oppression of the poor and the perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at that situation, because one official protects another official. Higher officials protect them. The profit of the land is taken by all, and the king is served by the field. But the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is hevel, a vapor. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun. This is chapter 6, and it weighs heavily on humanity, verse 1. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is hevel and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial. This is where he comes in. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for he comes in futility, hevel, and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet. The appetite is never satisfied. What advantage, then, does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This, too, is hevel, vapor, a pursuit of the wind. Now, look what, look what the teacher is going to say in chapter 6. He says, I could have, I could have a hundred children... And live 2,000 years, a 1,000 times, twice, and still not be satisfied. There is this, like, confusion in the teacher's voice. How is it that a poor man can be satisfied with little, and the rich man cannot be satisfied with much? But again, we really like it that 1 plus 1 equals 2. Rich means we have much, and we're satisfied with much. One, the more ones we put in, the more satisfied we are. Money plus money should always equal more happiness, more satisfaction, more joy. So, man, we, 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 we put that into the equation and we go, man, what does it take to accumulate so that I will have joy and happiness and be satisfied? We go to great lengths to find satisfaction in our possessions. Uh, in college, there was this girl that I really liked. And, uh, and so I'm, most of the time I played it cool. I'm not cool, but I, I tried. And, and, uh, and so sometimes I would even act like a little recklessly just to get her attention. And so, um, so every day we would hang out in the library at college and then and, and she would study and I would do crossword puzzles. And... Somewhere I got school done. I, I'm not really sure how it happened. But, but anyways, so then, and then on the way to class, we would head downstairs, you know, two-story building. We'd head downstairs to the classroom on the first floor. And so I, being the cool guy that I was, I always hopped on the railing and slid down you know, the whole thing. And, and just all the way down to the bottom. I'm like, this is awesome. And uh, because I'm cool that way. And, and so this girl always told me, she's like, one day, one day. You're going to fall, and I'm going to laugh. You're going to fall, and I'm going to laugh at you. And so one day, I, I went to slide down, and my backpack had just a few too many books in it. And so I went to go slide down, and the backpack took me back over the side. And so I went to go slide down, and my whole body just right over the top of the railing. And I went down two stories, almost like I think the first story was just me falling, backpack first. And then I hit 
and rolled and my arm fell in the railing and slid down the rest of the way, all the way down to the bottom. And so by the time the, the crowd went over to look, I was down at the bottom, hung like, like this, backpacks out on the side. I'm still down in the thing. And, um, and she laughed. She told me she would, and she did. Uh, she did laugh at me. She promised. And so it worked out, though. I did marry her in the end. But I, but I mean, you know, you, you do what you have to do, right? You've got to put in the effort, right? That's the whole point. If, you, if this is what you feel like you need, you've got to get after it, whatever it takes to get there. Even falling two stories down a stairwell, like that's what you have to do. But, but maybe we don't have stories to that same degree of, of what we have done in our own lives to procure the thing that we think we need to find value and worth and happiness and joy and satisfaction. But man, what is it that goes in our minds? If I could only have that, if I could just get that, I will never need anything else again. I will be set for life. So we go to these, these great and absurd lengths to, to make it happen, to, to get the girl to notice us, to, to find the clothes that will finally fit, uh, to, 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 to get the job that we need, to give us the money we need so that we can have the things that we feel like we need, so then we will finally have joy and satisfaction. But have you ever noticed that you never quite get there? You never quite arrive. You never quite have everything. You can eat until you are full, and then you will get hungry the next day, or maybe the next hour, and you have to eat again. You can accumulate knowledge with the hope of learning everything, but there is still more to learn. Do you know what the one thing that I learned in seminary was? How little I know. Like, I thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a master's degree. And so the word master means I have mastered it, right? And I went through the degree and I got the thing. I'm like, all that I know is that before I thought I had this much knowledge to learn, and I'll just, I'll get that. Now what I've learned is that I learned this much. There's actually this much. I'm, I'm further behind than I ever was before. That's all I learned in seminary was how much I don't know. Um, uh, I, I've, I've never reached the point of that satisfaction. I hunger for more. You can move to a larger house and fill it with stuff, but there's, there's always more stuff and never enough house. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the newest iPhone always seems like the last iPhone you'll ever need, and then the newer, newest iPhone comes out, and you'll be like, ah, dang it, I need the newer, newest iPhone. And then I'll be happy. I, I had a professor once who walked into the, the, this, the phone store, and, and uh, the guy's showing him these phones, and he's like, you want this phone? No, you need this phone in your life. And the, the professor was like, I, I have a flip phone. Like, I don't need that. I guarantee you I don't need it. He's like, no, you need it. And I'm sure that this is a, 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 a marketing bit that has worked before because we feel like we need Three phone cameras instead of two cell phone camera lenses. We need four camera lenses. I need, I need all the lenses, right? We need them to feel satisfied, to feel, uh, um, to be fulfilled. Satisfaction through possessions becomes a vapor because we want it. And we think that we can get it if we just spend enough time or money or work hard enough or do something bold enough. But it always ends up disappointing us because there is something more that we are missing. We become weary and tired, and we are never filled with our possessions. And so, finally, the teacher makes this point that our possessions are are temporary and and transient. Our, Our stuff, we don't get to take it with us when we go. Um... Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, Here is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. Came from his womb, he will go again, naked as he came. Chapter 6, verse 3, he says, A man may father a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives. If he is not satisfied by good things... 
He, a stillborn child is better off than he. A person lives a thousand years twice, does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. And then again in verse 10. Whatever exists was given its name long ago. It is known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase hevel. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life? In the few days of his hevel life that he spends like a shadow, who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? As he came from his mother's womb, he will go again, naked as he came. This is a sickening tragedy. Do not both go to the same place. What is the advantage for mankind? Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? One by one, the teacher is, is, is describing what he calls this sickening tragedy. And, and in Hebrew, the, the, the picture here, the word picture, <coughs> is, is like this idea of it being this sickening tragedy. Tragedy is the word raw, meaning evil. It's like this it's like this evil that, that hangs around your neck and it's just growing on you and it's weaseling into you and it's, it's paralyzing you and it's, it's rotting away at you and it's, it's gross. It's gross. It's a grievous evil, a sickening tragedy. What he's talking about here, and much like the, what the book of Ecclesiastes is, 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 is all throughout, is that this, there's this certainty of death for all. The wicked and the wise, they both die. The poor and the rich, they both die. The stoic and the hedonist, they both die. Everyone dies. Do not all go to the one place. In other words, doesn't, doesn't everything just return to the dust at some point? Even your own life and your breath that have been given to you, that belong to you, will at some point be taken away? That's just the nature of things. It's just the nature of everything under the sun. So what do you do about that? He's saying, what, what do I do about this fact? Can I be okay with this fact? Can I actually be okay with this concept of death? Now, maybe you are not the consumerist type and you have very little of what you might call sentimental, but I bet if you look hard enough, there is something that, when it is gone, can grieve you like no end and make you feel like you've been abandoned. Now, I've shared this story many times because it's part of my story and how God has worked through me, but, but we experienced a miscarriage 10 years ago. And, and 11 weeks into what we thought was a happy pregnancy, that baby died. And, and, and to this day, we have no idea what actually happened. We, we've tried to figure it out, tried to put it together, tried to manage it, tried to understand up here what happened. We have no idea. And one day our baby has a fine and healthy heartbeat, and the next one, she's, he's gone. And so, so both my wife and I have looked back on that moment as, as perhaps one of the hardest and most difficult and, and painful days in our lives. And so every August 21st, um, which is the, the, the day that we lost the baby, we, we mourn that loss. We, we grieve it. We, we manage our days around what we have been given and what we have lost. And do we not all do that? We celebrate birthdays and we grieve funerals. And, and most all of us can, can point back to days in our lives where we lost someone, we gained someone, we lost someone, we gained someone, we lost someone. And, and to this day, I, I still struggle with the, the fairness of it all. 
I, I tell my kids, I'm saying, I, I always tell my kids, like, if it weren't for what happened, we wouldn't have you guys exactly as you were. Like, it's this unique mystery, of, and it's almost like this unfair thing that I have to deal with, the fact that, that my kids are unique in who they are, almost specifically because they were born in the way that they were born a month, I think it was two months after we lost the baby, we, we got pregnant with Camille. We, would we have ever gotten pregnant with Camille had we not had the baby? So we're struggling with the, the, the vexation of life, the absurdity of this cycle. We grieve one and we have joy for the other. Like how do we, how do we manage that? Is that even fair? As a human being, I have to go through this struggle every time? To, to, to experience these joyful birthdays and to grieve the loss of, of my child, how do you do that? Because in that moment for us, our family of four became a family of three. And that subtraction just created a void, loneliness, emptiness. I tell you this because I can understand as much as anyone the pain of loss of a possession, a child I called mine. We identify so easily with what we have and hold that when we lose it, it shakes us. It rattles us at the core of who we are. It, it, it pulls at our self-esteem. It, it calls into question our ability as stewards it leaves us alone. Loss can change our very identity sometimes. When a, when a marriage dissolves, spouses become divorcees. When a husband dies, a wife becomes a widow. Homeowners can become homeless, wealthy become poor, children becomes orphans. Loss changes the way that we self-identify. It changes who we are and who others perceive us to be. So the question here is, how much stock have you put in your identity by what you have? When is it inevitably, when it is inevitably and eventually taken away from you, how much of yourself will be ripped away as a result? We are never solaced our possessions. And so we, we reach this point of crisis for the teacher. And for us, honestly, because this, again, this is our journey. And we reach a point of crisis when we, when we recognize where we have come and what we have done and what we are left with when it all is said and done. The more you gain, we think, the less you rest the more you gain, the less you are satisfied. And the more you gain, the less contentment and solace you have. And so, so, so you could respond and say, well, I guess that means that my, my answer is I have to get rid of everything. I have to go live as a monk in a cave somewhere. And, and, and maybe I'll just dismiss everything as empty, unsatisfying, wearisome trinkets. Everything is bad, and I don't want it. But again, before we dismiss it, before we say all of these good things are not good things at all, they are just bad and awful, and I need to go, go just remove all of it from my life. Right in the middle of this whole passage is like depression, 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 and right in the middle, the spark of life is found. And it's almost like in the midst of all of this darkness, what the teacher says right in the middle just stands out brightly and shines in our eyes about how hopeful it is. He says, here is what I have seen to be not hevel, good. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, 
everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth. He has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. The teacher's struggling with something, isn't he? He's struggling. There's this tension that the teacher is facing as he's considering what is meaningful and worth and value. Wealth and possessions are heavily to him, there's this, this striving after an endless wind. And yet, at the same time, right in the middle of it all, the teacher is starting to see something. Possessions are good and enjoyable. To enjoy his gifts freely is his lot. And he says, the gift of God is for everyone to enjoy whatever it is that God has given to them. He says this thing. It almost seems out of place with all of this discouraging talk about Hevel. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He fills his days with joy. What does this mean? It's almost hard for us to encounter that word joy after we have so exhausted ourselves from the pursuit and the loss of all of this stuff. It's almost hard to say, like, how can I enjoy this when I have been so informed and so realized it in my own life that it's actually not very joy-giving? But man, is our joy found in the gift or is our joy found in the giver? Is our joy found in the gift or is our joy found in the giver of the gifts? I know at the end of the day, my daughter will love Christmas even if I give her none of the things on that list. Why? The giver, not the gift. The gift is a dream. It's pipe dreams. It's, it's, all, it's all vapors. She knows it. She's like, I'm just sending these up in the air and seeing if any of them stick, right? But, but can we go back to that list real quick? If, if, it, if, it, if anything happens, my daughter, the brilliant one that she is, she put a little, um, she put a little like, fail-safe in there. Anything anyone gives me. Man. I know that at the end of the day, whatever it is, is, is it, it won't matter. She will have joy because the, she's, there's a giver who's coming to give her to, to give, to joy. There's a gift that is to be enjoyed. Now, now it would be, we would be remiss to look at the book of Ecclesiastes as some sort of just carpe diem thing. All of life is meaningless, so we might as well just eat and be, drink and be happy for tomorrow we die, right? And, and sometimes he gets into that. But, but the thing is, is that when we recognize these 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 parts in the scripture where he says there's a good gift that comes from a God who gives it and he's occupying us for some reason and he's pointing us for joy and he's begging us to look up to the giver instead of the gifts. The gifts don't seem on their own, don't seem to be that helpful, but the giver seems to be the one who provides the joy. What, what am I doing with that? What am I making of that? He's recognizing that, that there is something good because we have a capacity to enjoy them, but something continues to tug as if there is something more, something firmer and steadier. What we will ultimately find, and what we believe here, is that in Jesus we will find everything that we are looking for. We find everything. We realize that rest and peace are more important than wealth and success. We, we look down and find there is, is one hand that is full, but we know it's more than enough. G.K. Chesterton writes, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And I like what Chesterton says here, but, but I want to adjust it just a little bit. 
Because for the follower of Jesus, the way to get enough is not to desire less, but to desire the one thing. There's one thing to desire. There is a treasure that exists, that, that satisfies, that, that will go where you go. It has a permanence with you. But it is nothing that this earth has or holds for us. That is why vapor, futility, is the result of every human pursuit. You cannot find it in the things that you gather and gain and procure for yourself. It is in a relationship that is freely given to you. God offers you something that can never be lost, something eternally satisfying. It's presence with him. It's a relationship with him. He bids you not to go and to gain, but to come and to rest. To come and to find peace. To come and to find family. In him is satisfaction. In him is family. In him is peace. And we get to be thankful for that. So let's pray and then we'll end our time in worship together. Father, we just thank you for every gift that you give. May we find our hope in you. May we trust in you today. Help us, Father, when we get stuck in the endless cycle and pursuit of all of the things of this world. May our restless hearts find rest in you. We just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.